Hello, hello, listeners to The Third Way. Um, this episode, as all episodes, is free, uh, no subscription required. Um, so please do share. I created the podcast because I like talking to brilliant people, many of which are many of whom are friends of mine, and such is the case today with Gavin McMahon. Gavin is based in Connecticut, and we met through Twitter um, in 2012, I think, and became great friends and have stayed in touch and partnered on projects. And um, so welcome, Gavin. Yeah, hi. Well, I qualify on the Twitter relationship front. Yeah, and friend. I'll, I'll count those two. I'm not sure about the brilliant. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so Gavin is the founding one of the found is the founding partner, a founding partner at Fast Forward. Fast Forward is uh, um, kind of a boutique transformation firm. They 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 help companies transform their cultures. And Gavin's, I don't know if specialty is the right word, but he's you're the only one I know that does it as well as as it's done. Is the way that you use visual visual um, art to explain complex ideas. Mm. Um, it's really quite unique because there's graphic recording. I mean, yeah. Emily does graphic recording in the Root River sessions. And yeah. um, I remember Heather, our mutual friend, Heather, that did some stuff. Yeah. Uh, but that's like transcribing. What you're doing is, I think of the one that you did recently on, um, on LinkedIn and it's just a in, very interesting gift to have an, an engineer that knows how to draw and, and create in such an artful way. You are quite the anom anomaly. <laughs> I'm not sure because if you get, if you, if you get, if you find an engineer my age, they, they all, they all were taught to draw with a pencil on a piece of paper because no, that's true. CAD, CAD machines were not, we're only just coming into yeah. their own then. Yes. So, um, it's funny we're doing this podcast because this episode, because basically the format is what you and I used to do when we were driving from, <laughs> sometimes driving all the way from either from uh, Pelham, is it Pelham? Yeah, yeah. To Connecticut where you live. Yeah. Uh, or driving from Pelham to where Verizon's headquarters yeah, was. We have these yeah. rich conversations about things then. At that time when we met, I was much more like politically conservative. And so a lot of it was, you know, <laughs> jousting around those ideas. And you, you, you know, like my my friend and guest I had on earlier a few episodes ago, Bryce Sloan, it was those conversations with you that I really began to develop some critical thinking skills. So mm -hmm. thank you for that. Well, so. you're welcome, I guess. <laughs> I wasn't yes, sure. I thought they were just conversations. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, um, so on the theme of thinking, we're, yeah. I wanted to talk today the topic of unconventional thinking. I think you are definitely a, what I call a third way thinker. You, you, I remember once you talked about operating in the crease, like I think it's a special operations term, but operating in the crease and that stayed with me of this place, which is referred to in some place, uh, some mythology as the golden medium mm -hmm. or the golden um, or the golden door. It's this the it's the ideas between two other ideas. Yeah. And I think it takes an unconventional thinker to do that. So my first question for you is, what can leaders do to develop unconventional thinking in themselves and their teams? Because oh. you and I have seen like firsthand the level of calcification 
and sort of institutional stagnation that you know condemns in some ways consciously or subconsciously unconventional thinking. But if somebody wants to do it, how do you go about doing that? How do I, you become an unconventional thinker? Well, strangely enough, I was thinking about this um, <laughs> because well, I think, first of all, you have to ask yourself, what is an unconventional thinker? And the, and the, the simple answer to that is it's something that isn't conventional, which means it's something that's not the way you normally think which really means if you extend that idea all the way down, no one is an unconventional thinker because everyone thinks conventionally, they think the way they think. So right. I, I think unconventional is in the eye of the beholder. It's, it's when you see someone else do it and you wouldn't have, that is not the lane you would have been in. That's not the approach you would have taken. It's, it's that, that type of thing. And so therefore, I think if you're asking yourself, well, how do I become more unconventional? You really are asking yourself, how do I become more comfortable with criticizing the way I personally think and, mm -hmm. and critiquing it? And, and I think that's, you know, that's, a, I don't know if it's a skill or a gift or anything. I just think it's, a, it's more an attitude than anything else. It's, it's I mean, I'll credit a lot of, you know, I am an engineer by training, but I left, I sometimes describe myself as a, a lapsed engineer who now tinkers with brains. Um, I, I haven't, I haven't uh, worked in engineering for a long, long time, but I think, I think people get into engineering because they want to know how things work and what thing, how, how things tick and, and how to break it apart. And I think a lot of, the way I approach things is, is, is that it's how does this work? How does this tick? How can I break it apart? And one of the things you pretty soon realize when you break things apart is you, you eventually have to put them back together again. So I, I think it kind of comes from that. Why do leaders develop? How, what can they do? I, I think a lot of it's just paying attention to what goes on around you. You've got to figure out how do you take these, you know, thought one and thought two and, and does it connect? I think right. that's, that's difficult for people. Um, yeah. Difficult for me though. I mean, it's not, I don't think any of it's a natural thing. I think people are, the people that you think are unconventional thinkers are conventional in their thinking. I know that's a really cheesy get out of jail free answer, but it's, <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. That's interesting. I think that, um, you know, we know the concept of switching costs. Yeah. And so everything has a switching cost. And I think the switching cost from, we'll call it institutional thinking to creative thinking, if it's not unconventional thinking, the switching cost is courage. I, I think of like, most people don't even know who Billy Mitchell is, but he's the only, only person in the um, history of the United States to have an airplane named, a military craft named after him, uh, the B-25 Mitchell bomber. See the one that took off from the, took off in response to the Pearl Harbor landings. Well, he he was part of that, but prior to that, he was actually court-martialed and sent to Leavenworth um, for um, basically dereliction of duty because he questioned the Navy's domination. The Navy was, the Navy was, 
very much like the primary influencer of US military, you know, defense policy. And, and he questioned it. And so they prosecuted him. And there's a, you know, great, you can Google it and, and, and learn about Billy Mitchell. But that, that took courage. That's, that's, to me, that's a switching, that's the switching cost of an unconventional thinker. And so what I would say in answer to this question is if you don't have courage in the small things, you're not going to have courage in some big thing as far as like questioning the way something's being done. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. There's no, no question. Right. Yeah. It's, fun, it's funny you mentioned switching costs. So that, that's a good example, I think, of unconventional thinking, because when you think about switching costs, you think about the switching costs that locks you into, let's say you, you, you stream on Netflix, right? There's a switching cost, which is, the hassle essentially of, well, I'm gonna switch Netflix off. I'm mm -hmm. gonna you know, sign up for HBO Max and then I'm gonna you know, switch my money from this to that. Or it could be the same if you switch from Verizon to T-Mobile or, or vice versa, it's all switching costs. Right. But unconventional thinking is taking an idea like switching costs and saying, well, the great resignation or the big quit or whatever you wanna call it, that's going on right now. Well, have we ever thought about switching costs as as the employee employer relationship? Because it's very easy to think about it as the Netflix subscriber Netflix relationship. Yes. But if you're an employer and you're an employee, there are switching costs to leaving your job. It's not just the, you know, I, that's it. I'm out of here. It's also the the idea that, well, there's actually a search cost. It takes you time to figure out, I want to get a new job. There's all of that. There's, mm -hmm. There are investments that you have to make because you need to clean up your resume and all that kind of stuff. But I think on conventional thinking, I definitely think you're right about the courage thing because you have to be okay with going there and thinking, yeah, I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. But you also have to take things that seemingly do not connect or people would not normally connect together and, and say, well, does that actually fit together? If you were the kid, that when you were playing with your blocks that your mommy gave you and you were mm -hmm. the one that tried to ram the square block in the round hole and you're probably going to be a better unconventional thinker yeah that's interesting because there's there's two things that discourage unconventional thinking and business in particular and one is like especially in startup world is the speed to market they don't want you to be an unconventional thinker. They want to sell shit. They want to get the numbers. Go, go, go. It, and then you have that you're more your your corporate institutions where they're 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 you know there's a sort of hoarding of power and this over reliance, in my opinion, on data. Mm -hmm. um, and they and and neither one of them encourage critical thinking, um, generally speaking, because critical thinking makes you go faster than you want to if you're moving slowly and critical thinking makes you move slower if you're already, if you're going too fast. Yeah. And I think of like, I'm not a, I'm not, I don't ride. I mean, I, I ride, I've ridden motorcycles many times as a, as a, you know, on the ranch growing up, but as far as like a road bike, but all my friends that ride motorcycles talk about the, the, the role of critical mind in the, in the micro moments of riding that motorcycle, because you were, you were, you are, um, basically consuming and processing information at a pace that really no one else is doing right. around in, unless they're also on a motorcycle. And I think, I think finding that, I think unconventional thinking is almost like that. 
it's like a Zen, a Zen tactic within like operating on, on a day-to-day basis as a leader. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I, I think yes. And, and that, and I'm still, I'm still processing your courage thought because when you said it's really hard, if you're in a startup or you're really hard in a, in a, in a corporate environment, you know, I've seen so many instances where the writing is on the wall and it's really obvious or the innovation is a great idea and you should definitely do that. And, and they just can't get out of their own way. And the only thing, and this speaks to what you said about courage, the only thing that makes that company do that is the competition did it. So now it's a good idea. That's, right. that's, it's suddenly become very conventional and yeah. now we can do it. But what before was just antithetical to how we thought about things. And there's all sorts of stories about that. The, you know, the, the Kodak's invention of photography, digital photography, and you know the all the telcos when you know the first one came out and said, "Well, we're going to have unlimited data." That it was everyone had thought about that, those ideas for a long, long time. It's just no one did it, and until the first person takes that step, it, then it becomes conventional. Then it becomes okay. Right. Yeah. Well, so that leads to something that. Um, well, you know, I like heresy. Um, and I have a, a keynote I've been giving for this year called The Art of Unfinishing. And it's a criticism of, of towards fixed mindset. And especially in business where I, t- I refer to uh, the idolatry of data mm. and guru, guru uh, worship. But they bring in the guru and they worship her or him. And then they can't perform. And so they leave, you know, the, and, and, but data is the same thing. And so I'm curious, um, I, I, in my opinion, there's an over-reliance on data and a diminishment of intuition, which is different than instinct. Um, but I'm curious in the work that you do and the, in the work you've done over the years, how, how does an unconventional thinker see data differently than, you know, a traditional thinker? So, so, I, I, there's a couple of answers to that. First, I, I really think companies and businesses that understand how to use data and use it really well are going to rule the world. That, mm-hmm. However you define that, whatever industry you're in. So I think it's really important to, to not dismiss data. Then I, the Part two of that thought is is really that if you look at any company, the value that a company creates, whether it's a company that writes software or it does services or consulting like we do, or doesn't matter really, it's basically a bunch of people and those people are getting together to make decisions and they're making decisions based on data, you think. But that presumes that everyone's completely rational and that everyone can look at data. So the way I think about data is, I don't think about data as the lead. I think about it as the story. And I think the truth is the story that emerges from the data. So what do I mean by that? I think that there is no such thing as perfect data. You're never going to have it. I think that if we all had perfect data and we all understood that perfect, that data perfectly, we would all make the same decisions. We would all worship the same God. We would all buy the same, you know, brand of mm-hmm. cornflakes because we'd all have perfect data. But that just is not the way the world works. The world is full of 
kind of imperfect human beings who who absolutely rationalize what they do all the time and what we're really good at is rationalizing the emotional decisions we make mm -hmm. so that when you look at data and this is where it blends with your idea about instinct you you have to take there's two camps camp number one is the camp that wants to be perfect and pure and pristine about how they treat data and very scientific in their method. And I think in certain industries, I mean, if you're researching the cure for cancer, definitely you should do it like that. But I think in most companies where you're trying to drive a decision through an organization and you're trying to get people to move, that's, that's never going to win because there's, you know, think about, think about that. This is something that's always blown my mind. I don't know if it's really true, but the five out of six dentists recommend that you should brush your teeth. That just blows my mind. I mean, that's a piece of data, but mm -hmm. I think about that and I think about, well, who is the sixth dentist? And, th and there's always an opposing point of view. What, what is going on? So I think if you set aside camp one, which is this perfect, pure view of data, then you get to camp two, which is how do I take this data and tell a story because the whole point of taking that data is to move people, whether I'm moving people internally, whether I'm moving people externally because I'm trying to get new prospects or customers or whatever it is I'm trying to do. I'm trying to use that piece of data and data is only a, a piece of that story. So I, I think I think unconventional uh, thinkers are good at understanding what the data can tell them, but they're even better at thinking how do I take this piece of data to move people, to get them to make that decision, whether it's to release that new product or to get to that new innovation or to you know, change a strategy or direction? Because the, the, there's organizational power in an organization that comes from the hierarchy and the fact that you're the senior VP of whatever. Um, but there's, there's storytelling power in an organization that comes from your influence and your ability to use data and tell a story about the direction that you want to go. And I, yeah. I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I know, I, I think a lot of people still are like this. And we've definitely had this conversation, Justin, where mm -hmm. I think most people think the world is a meritocracy or they labor under the, the belief mm -hmm. that the world is a meritocracy. And it's completely not true. It never was, never is, never will be. It's all a bunch of imperfect human beings rubbing together. And you see this over and over again, where you see some great idea come out in a room and it just fizzles away because the person that had that idea didn't have enough organizational power or they didn't have enough storytelling power to make that idea and you know, wrap it in data and all the rest of it to make to package it and make it come true. And that's where I think... I mean, certainly for me, it's been a kind of multi-year journey to realize that the world is not rational and, and a meritocracy to this. It's just a bunch of imperfect human beings rubbing against each other, all of whom have an opinion. And how do you use data to shape that? Yeah, I think I, that makes sense. And, you know, within, I mean, I'm not at all an expert in this, but, I've, but in, the, in complexity science, you know, that, that there's so many anomalies with data. And I think we live in a very, you know, I've, I've said this maybe even on this podcast before, like do you take demographics as a data point in mm -hmm. branding, marketing in particular? Well, the, there's only really two large predictable demographic groups now, and that's old people and Trump supporters. 
<laughs> so they, they have very common behaviors in large groups of people. The rest of the world, the rest of the, the, rest of the world is very diverse and highly unpredictable about what they're going to do and what, you know, what, and, and there's so much more like belief-based buying now. You can see this yeah. with like ethically sourced stuff. And, and so my, the way I look at this from an unconventional thinking standpoint is I think what, a, what an unconventional thinker does is she or he uses data to um, affirm an idea. Yeah. Maybe as opposed to um, a conventional thinker, which uses data to inform an idea. Yeah. Like we're getting, you know, we're going to, we, here's a piece of data. Now we're going to, it's like, it informs the decision as opposed to influences the decision. And I think, I think by their nature, unconventional thinkers have this, this harmony between left and right brain that a conventional thinker is usually, usually a conventional thinker is going to be way over left brain. And they look, and it's kind of like the guys in the gym that only do upper body. You know, their, yeah. their right brain is like chicken legs. Yeah. Um, and so and, and I think what that does, if you go really deep into it, is I think that that lack of balance between the left and the right brain produces insecurity within the ego. And data is so comfortable to people with fragile egos. Yeah, it's a crutch. Um, it's a crutch, yeah. It's like the Mark Twain quote about statistics. And, and so the, I, think the, I think using a kind of a Buddhist term, but I think that unconventional thinker also practices like healthy non-attachment to yeah. data number is the number there's a story behind that number every single time yeah. and that's why it's good to know but it's not going to decide anything for me yeah yeah it's yeah i think you're right i think that's a great way of saying it as well this this idea that you know you use it to to influence or you use it to inform it's Data is a funny thing because it changes all the time. You talk about statistics. Was the Mark Twain quote the seventy-eight percent of statistics are made up on the spot? That one? No, he said uh, he uses um, statistics like a drunk man uses a light pole for support rather than illumination. Oh, <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. The yeah, I data. It, it's a lot of it is. So when you talk about we do these storytelling workshops and we and we executive presence stuff and and we we talk about this a lot when you're presenting data what you're really doing you're doing one of two things you're you're showing trends you're showing correlations you're showing whatever it is anomalies but you're showing data but you're really doing one of two things you're either affirming somebody's opinion somebody's worldview because they they have a mental model of how the business works and your data is supporting that mental model. So simple example of that would be if I um, invest in the customer experience and I'm gonna you know, put a zero on the end of the budget to what we do with customer experience, then my NPS score will go up. That's a mental model that most people might have of the business because they see a straight line. And if your data shows that actually you did that, you invested, an extra zero in the customer experience and your NPS score goes down, you will have the hardest time in the world explaining that data to people because it goes against the mental model. So I think one of the most important things you have to understand with any piece of data is, are you going against a, a, 
a prevailing wind. I yeah, come right. back to you to your topic, conventional thinking. Because if you're using data to try and counter a a belief system that's in a business or in a person, you're just going to have the hardest time in the world because they just won't buy it anyway. Right. Yeah. It's it's the it's the I, I call it the broccoli the case for broccoli. Like if you don't like broccoli, it doesn't matter how many ads you see or how much data you have that broccoli is good for you. You don't like broccoli. And it's- um, But you like bacon, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, so I also think this is a, a reminder, at least, I, yeah, it's a reminder for leaders around the uh, importance of neurodiversity or neurodivergent ideas is, you know, I have ADHD um, people, you know, neurodiverse people have that are ADD, ADHD, uh, dyslexia, autism, Asperger's, and other other neurodiverse things. These are not disorders; they're superpowers. They're especially related to unconventional thinking. Because if you want to get an unconventional thinker, find somebody that's neurodiverse and, or, or non-neurotypical, and they will. The one of the main superpowers of ADHD, in particular, is pattern recognition, or more specifically, the breaking of pattern. Right. And I'll, I'll give you a funny little story about that as I'm sitting in, I'm, I'm in the, I'm sitting in, we just moved into this new house and I'm sitting at the table and this is an open, like a great room. So there's the dining room that I'm sitting in and the kitchen and the living room. And something is different. Something is different. And this whisper in my, whatever, spidey sense is something is different. And up on the upper shelf, to the right of the stove are those like mason jars you buy at Ikea, you yeah. know, with the lamps. And there was three of them. And the first one had rice in it. The third one had sugar in it. And the middle one was empty, except no, it wasn't. It had granola in it. Somebody in Virginia put granola in the, and then I noticed it. And I just laughed because I'm like, imagine this power, this ability to do this with like, you know, military intelligence or like, or, or, or research and development. Um, like imagine a group of neurodiverse people put, being put in charge of data analysis instead of somebody that has got an, you know, overly muscular left brain. I think it would be a fascinating um, shift for companies to, to put neurodiverse people in positions where they are, they are analyzing data. Well, it, so it, it, that's, really true and you think about think about this theme of conventional thinking and and neurodiverse people i i had a i had a conversation at the beginning of the pandemic with a chief people officer of a fairly large company and i said to her what's what's the biggest thing that you're noticing and she said you know it's really it's really strange because i I, I have a bunch of A-list talent. Every HR organization does this. They, have, they decide who's high potential and they have some kind of model that says, these are people that are ready to be promoted, et cetera. And so I have this A-list talent and some of them are doing really, really well. They're, you know, they're managing their teams, they're getting stuff done, they're firing mm -hmm. on all cylinders. And then some of that A-list talent is just climbing the walls. They don't know what to do with themselves. And then she said, and I have some talent, she didn't use this word, but I'll, for the sake of making it uh, obvious, I have C-list and D-list talent that I never thought would, would do well, who are really killing it. They're, 
their teams are really productive, they're, they're doing really well, they're really engaged, which, which points to something to me, because it's, it, you know, if you're conventional and then you're faced with this big schism, this big change, then everything changes. It's like, so you've had this experience, when, you, when you're in school, when you're in high school, for me, it was a, we call it a different thing. We call it a senior school where I come from, but you're, you're basically walking down a corridor and, and you're talking to your friend. And mm-hmm. in that conversation, one of you says to the other, what's the, what's the English homework for next week? Mm-hmm. And, and the, there's, a, there's a questioner and an answerer. And in my view, the, the person that asked the question was the person that worked really well in an office because they use the social construct and the social dynamic around them to navigate the world. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that are good on their feet in the room and everything else. But the person that's maybe the quieter person that the, 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 the doesn't talk to other people, that is really maybe the introvert, maybe the person with ADHD or whatever, they were the person that answered and said, well, this is the English homework for next week because they're not using other people around them to navigate their world. And I think it's really funny how the, the move from the office has changed all that. And people like almost en masse have recognized that there's a, there's a new opportunity for people that are more introverted, for people that are, have ADHD, that pe- people are neurodiverse. It was never there before. I never really talked about it, to be honest. I mean, right. let's face it, offices were palaces for extroverts. They always have been right. and always will be. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And it goes to the, you know, hybrid workspaces and some of the stuff I mean, you've written at length about this and mm. that, you know, put people in a place where they are the most productive, not where you think they should be the most productive. Yeah. Uh, and it's so simple, really. Um, so kind of final question, thoughts, more of a brainstorm, um, as we are prone to do is, so you said at the beginning of this that everyone's a conventional thinker, and I would say, okay, that's true. If that's true, then everyone has latent unconventional thinking properties true, activated, and I think it's a skill. I don't believe that unconventional thinking is like an athletic ability. I think that some, some people may adopt the skill faster than others, but everyone, like creativity is an example. Creativity is everyone is creative. Yep. Um, and, and so um, it's more about activating it and developing a skill. So I wanted to brainstorm on just two or three skills that you think that a person should develop. And, and what, the, what, are those, what are those skills, like practical tools? This is kind of the pragmatic side of unconventional thinking. And it kind of goes full circle to what I was saying about yeah. developing, developing it, but actually the skill itself. What should those skills be? So yeah, first of all, I completely agree. This is definitely something you can learn. Um, I I think of it as what I call thinking in negative space. So picture the FedEx logo, and anyone that's you know you've worked in marketing and creative for a long time. So anyone that's worked in that industry knows they see the FedEx logo, and in the middle of the FedEx logo, in the negative space, is an arrow pointing to the right. And there's tons of logos that are like that now because it's a very clever idea. But I think what's interesting about that is once you know, you can see both the the letters FedEx 
and the arrow at the same time, and you can switch back and forth all the time. Mm-hmm. That, that to me is when you said, okay, if everyone's conventional, then everyone is, can also be unconventional. What people have got to practice doing is seeing both sides of the FedEx logo all the time. So the question then is, how do you do that? And I think it's, it's by asking yourself the opposite. So if you ask yourself, well, what's changed or you're panicking about what's changing, you've got to ask, well, what hasn't changed? Mm-hmm. If, if, you, if you talk about five out of six dentists recommend brushing your teeth, then you've got to, you've got to ask yourself, well, what, what, what planet is that sixth den- dentist on? What's going on there? You've got to start mm-hmm. looking at both sides of it and you've got to take, I think, really different things and try and connect them together. I think that's one thought I would I would have for that. Um, let me tell you a story because you were talking about World War II bombers and, and Billy Mitchell. So the, this is maybe something a lot of your listeners have heard, but this is the story of Abraham Wald and the um survivor bias so he was a a jewish refugee worked at i think it was columbia and he worked in one of these think tanks for the allies and they went and asked him well where do we put the armor plate on our bombers because we're losing way too many people the bombers are not coming back and they showed him a bunch of bombers that were riddled with bullet holes and the conventional thinking would be let's put the armor where all the holes are that's what i would think and that's maybe what you would think if you hadn't heard the story already but once, oh, you, but but Abraham Wald worked out. Well, actually, I want to put the the armor where the bullet holes are not, over the engines. The reason being that the that's that's survivor bias. The bombers that came back are the ones that survived. Are the ones that people survived. The ones that people died in are the ones that went down in in a fiery, you know, spiral. Mm-hmm. And they were the ones where the, the engines were all shot up. So that's where we should put the armor. So this idea of thinking in, in the opposite is very much that Abraham Wald survivor bias idea, I think, of, of doing both things at once. That's a great story and great example. Um, I, I think the most, one of the most important skills to develop is critical mind. And you know this is what happens when we've taken out of like, at least in the United States, out of a mandatory curriculum, things like uh, comparative religion or philosophy. Those are, mm. those are options. Or if you go to a private school, maybe you'll learn them. But in public school, you don't learn philosophy anymore. And ph- the role of philosophy is to question things. Right. That's what it's for. Um, and so critical mind as a skill, um, the first thing that is, I think people need to understand if they are from the West, Western world, Western civilization, is the massive amount of social conditioning around dualistic thinking, black and white thinking. And that's especially true within white male dominated power structures. Um, there's something about, and then we could dig into it, that you know, white male power structures have an excessive over-reliance of dualistic or binary thinking, which is why they, they get all aroused about data, um, in my opinion. And I think what critical thinking is, is the first realization that you might be wrong. Yeah. You might be wrong. And, and that's the first thing. If you can't be humble enough to say, I might be wrong, then the rest of it doesn't matter. There's no other skills to develop to be a, a, an unconventional thinker. If you can't except that you might be wrong. And a second one then with critical thinking, I think is um, the ability to challenge, how do we know that's true? 
to yourself or yeah. to someone else. And con and this is a Byron Katie thing from um, from loving what is and her her stuff called the work. But we don't apply it necessarily in the business world of allowing people to question and be like, how do you know that's true? How do you know that's true? Until you until you get to um, maybe the bottom of the story, and um, and I think that that's all part of critical thinking. And that you, we could we could have a whole you know conversation about critical thinking as an absolutely essential component to being an unconventional thinker. Yeah. Um, let's do one more. We'll do one more each, and then we'll wrap. What's one other skill that you think a leader or person could develop to be an unconventional thinker? Um, I I think. Well, I think it builds off your idea of of of, of I'm wrong, right? Because if, if you don't consider yourself to be wrong, then there is no other answer. And I, I think there's always, it's a weird balance of there's always an answer and it's always a, a weird mishmash of something. I'm, I'm going in circles. Let me, let me recast and say, tell you a different story. This is another World War II story. You can tell what, what I watch at weekends. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this is a, a Russian uh, rocket scientist. I forget, I forget his name. I'll, it'll come to me in a minute. But basically, he was like an Einstein in that he was a patent clerk. And he developed this theory called TRIZ, which is um, TRIZ is what the, the Russian letters work out to. It's basically this a theory that everything is a reinvention everything is a remix and he came out with these these patents that were you know one pattern would be addition another pattern would be subtraction so it's how can you invent and recombobulate things so an, an addition pattern is well if i've got one razor blade two razor blades might be pretty good three razor blades that'd be interesting or subtraction is what happens if I take something away? What happens if I take a kid's bike and I take the pedals off? So I've just got one of these rolling bikes. That's even easier. That's better than training wheels. So he, he came up, Allstaller, I think Allstaller was his name. I'll, I'll, I'll chat you the, right. the correct name later. But, <laughs> but um, I think that's one of the, you talked about as pattern recognition, knowing what the patterns are and building towards patterns, I think is a really good muscle to exercise. I don't think it's necessarily critical thinking or unconventional thinking, but I think it's a really good thinking muscle anyway. And it's something mm -hmm. that can make you very um, good at whatever it is you do, because you know how to build the pattern. Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll end with um, something that they teach you in debate. Again, another thing that's not required in school anymore, um, a debate. Uh, speech and debate and a shout out to my daughter-in-law Sarah who is a speech and debate coach and um, better a better debater than I am which is hard for me to admit uh, but it's, <laughs> um, is is learn to take the a position opposite of what you believe yeah um, even if you just do that with yourself if, if you can do that with yourself and you can you can take an opposite position related to a strategy or or prevailing opinion and if you can take an opposite position, at a minimum, it will help you understand those that oppose to your ideas. Um, and 
Um, it's you could take this and take it out of the business world and look at like I I do seek to understand the motivation behind uh, Trump supporters, for example, and I, I I get it. I don't I I very much disagree with it, but I get it, and because I think I've tried to in my own mind take the position, you know, of why I would be pro-authoritarian as an example, or why I would say Christian nationalism is a good idea, um, you know, those type of things. And I think in a business environment in particular, that that makes you, um, it gives you range. It gives you range to be able to test your own idea, test your ideas and other people's ideas. So yeah. that's a whole nother conversation we could have. The idea yes. of the, how do you move this Overton window where people think, well, this is, this is okay. But anyway, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We could do one on Occam's razor too. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So well, uh, Hamlin, yeah. If I if we get to see each other again in real life, we should. I'll just make sure that we just record our conversation in the car, and that could be another episode. So <laughs> good to work. see you. You have, a, you have a beautiful mind. Thank you, Gavin. Thanks, Justin. <laughs>